Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. We continue our series in the second half of American history with our 42nd podcast. In our 41st podcast, we looked at family life in the anti-communist age of Dwight Eisenhower, an 11-year period of history known as the Confident Years. We looked at the American Transportation Revolution with the Federal Highway Act. We also then examined the brand new contribution in terms of the types of automobile called called the sports car. We looked at what was coming out of that sports car's car uh, radio speakers with the advent of the different types of music as well, from instrumentals for the older generation to the advent of rock and roll. And while that was a recording that hopefully after listening to it, you had a good feeling about what life was like in the 1950s, I only gave you part of the view out that window. Because there was the other reality to the 1950s as well, and that was the fact that the Cold War was continuing on between the Soviet Union and the United States. And that's what we'll look into here, again, in the 42nd podcast on U.S. History 2. So the Cold War took on a brand new sense of urgency in October of 1957, when the Soviet Union launched Sputnik. That satellite that they were able to put in outer space without being destroyed and eventually bringing those types of objects back into the Earth's atmosphere, that horrified the American people. That gave them a sense of vulnerability. Because if the Soviet Union could get an object into outer space and out of space back into the Earth's atmosphere, a satellite was the least of America's concerns. Rather, it was intercontinental ballistic missiles. In other words, weapons of war. Missiles with nuclear tips that could wipe out cities and surrounding suburbs in a matter of seconds. This horrified the United States, which is why less than a full year later, the United States organized and launched the National Aeronautics Space Administration, called NASA for short by the acronym. This is what would invent, design, or design, invent, and carry out what would become known as the Apollo missions. It would have also eventually create something known as the space shuttles, all of which we'll talk about as this podcast series continues throughout the second half of American history.
But for the Apollo missions, we also recognize the daunting tasks in front of us, what it took to get roughly 3,000 tons of steel and on average three human beings, three men off the ground. It would need enough fuel to allow a car to travel around the globe no less than 400 times. It would require 131 educated people to be seated in what becomes known as mission control. 131 people, you think. Oh, no, it had to take more than that. Oh, absolutely. I'm talking about just the people that are on task as the Apollo spacecraft were taken off from Earth. In total, it would require 17,000 technicians just to create a successful launch that does not include all the designers and manufacturers and laborers in order to put those rockets together, comprising no less than 400,000 people in total. Every procedure had to be exact as there was only a wiggle room of roughly 30 seconds of extra fuel. If they did not reach and get to their destination in outer space, there was no second chances. There was no do-over. There was no restart button. Ladies and gentlemen, we were going to the moon one way or another. A future president of the United States by the name of John F. Kennedy will take the idea of NASA and put that on steroids in order to get Americans and be the first human beings to not only reach the surface of the moon, but also to walk on it. With this, at this particular time in the late 1950s, seems no less clearly than science fiction. But as we know, this is science fiction that will become nonfiction. Also, again, as I am prone to do, and go ahead and roll your eyes as I'm getting into another moment of nostalgia here, but you think about it, George Washington is said to have planted the first American flag in U.S. soil during the late years of the American Revolution. Washington supposedly said to an aide-de-camp there in the late 1770s, how long would it last? How long would that American flag be allowed to fly free, unfettered by government overreach and unnecessary government intervention? Supposedly, General Washington said this and then gave out a short laugh. Can you imagine if you or I had been a human being transported back almost 200 years ago, almost 200 years ago, and said, General Washington, just to give you an idea, sir, how successful this American experiment in democracy and our overthrowing of the British government is going to be? that that little flag there that you planted with 13 stars on it will eventually have 50 stars on it and will also at some point fly on that object up there. 
And as you set up there and pointed towards outer space to the moon, tell me that Washington would not have thought you were nuts. Tell me that Washington would not have thought, okay, this this man or woman has clearly had too much to eat or drink. Get them out of here and put them out of their mis- out of their misery, right? But it just goes to show you again how fast humankind was moving ahead. And I say humankind, I'm not just going to say Americans here, because it wasn't just Americans involved with NASA any more than it was strictly ethnic-born Americans in the Manhattan Project. It was international contributions. It just so happened that it would be the American flag on those first two bombs being dropped. It would be the American flag on those first rockets taking off with humans on board to land on the moon. But other flags will be on other craft that will also follow, and all will learn from one another, making it a human endeavor. From that Apollo technology, we would also then be able to adapt that to consumer civilian use. With our ability to try to move an object as at the speed that we needed to, at the force that we needed to, we would then move into the age of jet aircraft, or it would put jet aircraft development also on steroids. Remember again in the Eisenhower administration, just a few years before, how getting from coast to coast went from 62 days to four days. Now with jet aircraft, humans were able to get from the east coast to the west coast or vice versa down from four days or from four days down now to six to seven hours. We humans, specifically us Americans, were moving at what would seem to be lightning speed. The changes were awe-inspiring as well as daunting. It would also be at this time too that we get into the age of America's youngest president and his family. That being, of course, the presidency of the 35th president of the United States, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Eisenhower had a strong reputation upon leaving office. He again was the five-star general of World War II, the hero of the European theater. But that type of success, that reputation, did not extend down to his vice president, his loyal vice president for eight years, Richard Milhouse Nixon. That's not to say that the success of the Eisenhower administration did not benefit Nixon. As the 1960 election, when Eisenhower had no choice but to step down due to the 22nd Amendment, stating that a president of the United States will only serve for two terms, Kennedy now has a chance only two years as a senator with any kind of experience, two years from the state of Massachusetts, will throw his hat in the ring of the Democratic Party to challenge that Vice President Richard Nixon. Kennedy did win but it was an extremely close presidential election. Some states, such as Illinois, were thought to be, shall we use the term, rigged, which is not a term they were using at this time. But Richard Nixon thought the better of it. He put, he put the American people above self, at least at this time he did, and said, no, the American people don't want to hear about recounts. They don't want to hear about delays in who their next president is. 
the numbers are what the numbers are. And Richard Nixon called to congratulate his challenger, John Kennedy. So the 34th president of the United States, Eisenhower, would attend the inauguration of his successor, the last presidential election where the incoming and outgoing presidents would be expected to wear top hats and tails. It would be a presidency, though, that again was very different from the president that was going out of the Oval Office. Eisenhower arguably was the end of an age of where we were largely expecting the elder statesman to occupy the Oval Office. Kennedy, in some cases, I don't want to say was breaking a ceiling in terms of age. Teddy Roosevelt was also extremely young upon ascending the presidency in 1901. But he did break it in terms of religion, being the first Roman Catholic to be elected to the presidency. Before that, being a Catholic would actually work against you, as many that challenged the, for, ran for the presidency found out that their religion actually was a drawback. The concern by the American people was is that, yes, this person might be the president, but because he's a Roman Catholic, the vice president's going to be the pope, figuratively speaking. But Kennedy, again, he swept into office, and he had what we could even look back some several decades later, over 60 years later, and say was arguably the ideal U.S. family. Both Jack Kennedy himself and his wife Jackie and their two beautiful children truly were the ideal U.S. family in terms of looks. It was like the textbook family. But as we also know, however, and if you didn't, you're going to find out now that our memory, however, was actually a lot better than the reality. The the life of Jack Kennedy was one of a lot of of speed bumps, a lot of tension, a lot of obstacles. He had Addison's disease, which affected his back, causing him to have severe back pains, which could, in again, I'm, I'm rhetorically speaking, temporarily paralyze him from being able to bend down and put a shoe on or to be able to sit down comfortably. It could give him muscle spasms that could take his breath away. As somebody who has experienced pain like this at times, I understand what that's like, but I have no idea what it's like for those attacks to come on unannounced and not know how long that they would last. The fact is, though, that Jack Kennedy was coming in with the dearth of experience. Again, he only had two years worth of any kind of government experience as a senator from Massachusetts, but his father the wealthy, wealthy billionaire Joseph Kennedy knew how to orchestrate the political machines in the major states that were required to get his son to the presidency. When asked after the, hearing the news that Jack Kennedy won the White House, what was the father's thought as being the living father of a sitting, soon-to-be sitting president? The smug Joseph Kennedy, rather than acknowledging the success of his son, said more or less to the press, you haven't seen anything yet, because if Joseph Kennedy has his way, this will be just the beginning of the Kennedys dominating the White House. 22nd Amendment or not, 
America will see almost a quarter century of Kennedys dominating the White House. Because after Jack Kennedy's two terms, Bobby Kennedy will then step up, as will Ted Kennedy. That's 24 years of American presidents. Uh, I guess you're not supposed to worry about the fact that they need to run and actually get elected. But that was just the confidence, overconfidence in some cases, or smugness of Joe Kennedy, thinking that the Kennedys would rule the United States through the White House. Because what he thought he would get in 20, for 24 years, as we know, would not even make four years. He would not even get out of office alive. Before that Kennedy is before the assassination of John F. Kennedy, please know too that oftentimes the history books can tend to gloss over some of the true catastrophic failures of the burgeoning and nascent Kennedy administration. The three crucial presidential errors were also taking place at arguably one of the worst times when America was the enemy of the largest country in the world that at this point was spanning over 10 time zones called the Soviet Union, who were armed to the teeth with thousands and thousands of nuclear weapons. Kennedy is in, in office more than 100 days before the catastrophic Bay of Pigs fiasco, where we were attempting to overthrow Fidel Castro the dictator that came into power in 1959 and was the puppet government of the Soviet Union. Please know the Bay of Pigs was not planned in the Kennedy administration. That was the, in the Eisenhower administration. The Eisenhower administration, Dwight Eisenhower specifically, was told that the planning would take longer than expected and would have to, he'd have to understand that the actual carrying out of the event might not take place in his term. Eisenhower was so confident that Kennedy, that, excuse me, that his vice president, Richard Nixon, would win the White House that he more or less said that that's of no consequence because whether it happens on my watch or Nixon's, either way, it will accomplish what we're looking to do, which is, again, to get rid of Fidel Castro. When Eisenhower, Eisenhower left office, he never canceled the plans. The military continued to plan for it, Kennedy was apprised of it. However, it turned out to be an absolute disaster for a variety of reasons that I won't get into in my limited time of these podcasts. But the fact that Americans did not achieve the objective which we set out to do, the fact that American servicemen were killed in Cuba and injured and taken prisoner of war, or prisoners of a conflict, much less war, America looked weak. America looked vulnerable. And sitting at the top of the American chain of command was the commander-in-chief, an unbelievably young John F. Kennedy. So again, listeners, it's not as though that this was planned from the very beginning and carried out in Kennedy's time. It was not. It was Eisenhower's administration's plan. But the fiasco happened on Kennedy's watch. He only, according to the Constitution of the United States, there is only one president at a time. And good or bad, what happens during that tenure, that 1,461 days of a full four-year term, which, as we know, Kennedy won't even get to, you have to take the good, the accomplishments with the bad. 
with the disasters. And the Bay of Pigs is Kennedy's first foray in international relations, and it's beyond a train wreck. Because of that, Kennedy then agreed to meet with Nikita Khrushchev at Schoenbrunn Palace in Austria in what became known as the Vienna Summit. The Vienna Summit in Schoenbrunn Palace, again, just outside of Vienna, is an absolute beautiful, beautiful palace. I visited, I've seen the hallway, I walked down the hallway where Kennedy and Khrushchev, or I should say rather than walking together, where Kennedy was trying to chase Khrushchev. I've seen the room where the two men were supposed to speak. And it can only I got chills then as I do now thinking about what could have taken place, but was ultimately a disaster. The reason being is that the, Khrushchev, the sitting premier of the Soviet Union, wanted to meet, again, the new president of the United States. What exactly was going to take place was quite involved, but it's of no consequence because they never got there. The flight from Washington, D.C. to Austria, to Vienna, Austria, was an extremely long flight. Kennedy is the first president to fly on what is now called Air Force One. Even though the presidential jet craft is full of luxury type items to make the president as comfortable as possible, because of his Addison's disease, Kennedy's doctors, the White House medical staff, advised the president to rest as much as possible to try to keep to the sleep pattern that he is used to as they slowly work him into Austrian time in terms of the time zones, but again, to try to rest as much as possible. Kennedy said absolutely whatever the doctor says until he was on board. On board the plane, Kennedy played with his kids. Kennedy talked with the press. He did everything but what he was supposed to, which was to rest. When he arrived in Vienna, he, get to the, he got to the hotel, they were, he went for an early bed as he was exhausted. But when he woke up the next morning, the first morning of the, time of the meeting between him and Khrushchev, Jack Kennedy reached over to Jackie Kennedy's hand and said something to the effect of, I'm having an attack. Jackie Kennedy, so used to it at this point, knew exactly what to do, grabs the phone, calls over to the Attorney General of the United States, none other than Bobby Kennedy, a man put into that office, not because Jack Kennedy thought it was a good fit, but because his father, Joe Kennedy, said, son, that's your Attorney General, Bobby Kennedy, because he needs to get that legal experience so he can run for president when you're done. Bobby Kennedy came into the bedroom. Him, Bobby, and Jackie knew what they had to do get Jack Kennedy dressed as quickly as possible by moving him as little as possible, practically picking him up out of the bed, into his socks, into his shoes, and trying to get him to ambulate down the hallway to meet with Khrushchev. Jack Kennedy did all he could do to try to ignore, to try to put to the side the excruciating back pains that he was having. But the pain was written all over his face and his body. They attempted to try to talk. They were getting nowhere. Kennedy fault beside the point, 
could not carry on a conversation. Khrushchev, now mind you, again, listeners, it is not Kennedy speaking in Russian to Khrushchev, nor is the Khrushchev speaking in English to Kennedy. They are going through a series of translators, which adds to the tension and adds to the problems ensuing. Khrushchev simply interpreted that Kennedy, not in pain because of muscular problems, but the man is that nervous to meet the leader of the Soviet Union. After attempting to try to mitigate this, Khrushchev more or less lost his temper, said that this was a waste of time, and charged out of the meeting room and down the hallway. The pain was beginning to subside a little bit due to the injections and medication that Kennedy was on. He was able to walk down the hallway, attempted to catch up to Khrushchev, who was already working his way outside of the palace doors, down the steps to the international press pool that waited at the bottom. And that's where Kennedy was following or chasing Khrushchev. Khrushchev slowed down, allowed Kennedy to get parallel to him, and then stepped back, where now Khrushchev, who was relatively short, was actually on a higher step and looking down on Kennedy, and said something to the effect that when the United States is serious to engage in diplomatic conversations and can send an elder statesman, I'm ready when they are and more or less patted the United States president on the head and said, enjoy your vacation. It could not have been, listeners, more condescending to the point that the cartoons, the political cartoons that would follow, for example, the Vienna Congress, the boy wonder versus the Grand Master, and it's a cartoon that shows a massive Khrushchev sitting at the chessboard with Kennedy, who's sitting on two books in order to elevate his stature, attempts to try to win a game of chess against Khrushchev. These were just one of the many types of cartoons that were being then printed, making the United States look weaker and weaker. If nothing more, the talk of a wall separating East Berlin from West Berlin if nothing more, Kennedy said at the conclusion of the summit, whether he could talk about it with Khrushchev or not, a wall would never separate East Berlin from West Berlin. Freedom from dictatorship, communism from democracy. At that point, however, the wall was already being built. The wall was actually being continued, was being lengthened and heightened that separated West and East Berlin. And what, of course, became known as the infamous Berlin Wall was a third tragedy, a third fiasco or presidential, gross presidential error that is happening literally in just a few months' time of Kennedy taking the oath of office. So those three crucial presidential disasters, the Bay of Pigs, the Vienna summit, the rise of the Berlin Wall, was it any surprise therefore, when Kennedy said that missiles, nuclear missiles by the Soviet Union will never be any closer 
than the Eurasian continent to the United States, was it any surprise that Khrushchev would look at his puppet government there in Cuba, Fidel Castro, and say, you're getting missiles, boys, whether you want them or not. Why? Because the United States said, we can't. This, those three disasters is what gave Khrushchev that false sense of confidence that he could put the most devastating weapons known to humankind at literally our front doorstep or our southern doorstep off of the southern tip of Florida. Would Khrushchev really be so audacious, so bold as to attempt to actually defy President Kennedy's prediction that missiles would never be that close to the United States? That's conjecture. And that's nothing more than brinksmanship. Until it happened. Until reconnaissance photos confirmed, United States Air Force reconnaissance photos confirmed that yes, indeed, missiles were being transported to Cuba. Silos were being dug to put in nuclear-armed Soviet missiles. Now, what does this relatively new and young President of the United States do now? He's not even into the presidency two full years. What are his options? What will he do? As America comes to the closest point of nuclear war with the Soviet Union. How does he reply? Well, I haven't gotten that far in the textbook. Tune in to the 43rd podcast and we'll dive in and run back in time to see what his options were and what he ultimately decided to do. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, please feel free to email me. If you like what we discussed today as well, please leave me a review. You can go to my website as well, ceconsola.com, and get the latest on what I'm doing in terms of writing and other podcast series. Have a great weekend. 